All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, now we're going to talk to someone that you guys might be familiar with. Uh, it's Josh Fox, uh, of course, the director of the uh, Oscar-nominated Gasland. I uh, also did Gasland 2, also did um, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, also the host of Staying Home with Josh Fox, which some of you just saw live. Uh, and... Uh, there he's got great guests like he just did today, Bill McKibben, Michael Mann, etc. Um, also a man having a little bit of a beef with Michael Moore. That's a fun story, although not really that fun, uh, that we'll get into in a second. Uh, but Josh, thanks for joining us. And uh, for folks who didn't see it, tell us what staying at home uh, with Josh Fox is. Hey, Jenk. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Um, it's great to be on The Young Turks. Staying Home with Josh Fox. It's our new program. Um, it's, a, it's basically, it's called Staying Home with Josh Fox, Your Revolutionary Guide to the Green New Deal. And it started as a series of talks about the Green New Deal that I was doing for DSA in New Orleans with New Orleans for Bernie. And, um, as, and then I proposed doing this spanning tour of Pennsylvania and New York talking about climate change, talking about the Green New Deal. And, you know, obviously couldn't do that. So I started to do the program at home. This is my theater, which is a converted garage um, in Northeast Pennsylvania, where we're sheltering in place. And Staying Home with Josh Fox essentially started as a series of conversations with climate experts um, and figures from the world of culture. So I know a lot of people who are activists, political folks, climate scientists, anti-fracking campaigners, journalists. And I know a hell of a lot of musicians and artists and writers and filmmakers. So I made a program where the first half is really about a pol political conversation. And the second half is about um, a, a more artistic dialogue, a more spiritual dialogue, a dialogue about how we're coping on the internal front with all of this huge changes. But the basic premise of the show is like, we must have the Green New Deal as a way to, um, as, a, as, a, as a cure um, and as a, a prescription out of this moment of the coronavirus, because the fossil fuel industry is actually a cofactor in the death rate of the coronavirus. So we talk a lot about how the Green New Deal is such an important part of our response to the coronavirus. And the Green New Deal is this, um, it's a piece of legislation, it's a, res it's a resolution, but it's also this fascinating world-changing philosophy. So the subject, it can get really deep and it, it's not limiting at all to talk about different aspects of it on, a diff on, every, on different nights, you know what I mean? So uh, th there's so much uh, to, to go over there. Uh, when you say it's a cofactor for coronavirus, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, so the fossil fuel industry all on its own before the coronavirus is a global pandemic. The fossil fuel industry's pollution kills five to seven million people every year, just in air pollution. That gives you cancer, it gives you lung disease, it gives you heart problems and a whole host of other things, right? That costs us $30 trillion a year in healthcare costs. So to switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy would save us $30 trillion a year, which would pay for the transition in about a year and a half. But those things, if you don't die from them, lung disease, heart disease, cancer, if you have a chronic condition, that makes you much more susceptible to having a bad, bad experience or even death with coronavirus because, because those things increase your chances of not surviving the coronavirus. So when we say people died of coronavirus, we also have to look into account the pollution that's there. Um, all of those things are part of the death rate. Additionally, if you live in a polluted area, you actually have a greater chance of getting the coronavirus because your lungs and your immune system are weakened. So 
at every stage along the game, the fossil fuel industry is a factor here. The good news yeah. is that the Green New Deal is actually the cure for the fossil fuel pandemic. We don't have a cure for coronavirus yet, but we have a cure for the other part. Yeah, friends of mine are sending me pictures uh, from all over the country in the cities that they live in, uh, remarking at how uh, clean the air is, and they can't believe how clean it is. That that's how it would normally be if we didn't have so much pollution from the cars, because obviously people aren't driving anywhere near as much as they used to pre-coronavirus. So uh, you could almost, basically, I'm telling you, you could see it with your own eyes, let alone things that you can't see. Uh, but Josh, uh, this is the hardest question of all. H- how do you uh, maintain hope that we can get the Green New Deal passed? I mean, I, I um, did a segment uh, recently about a five-year plan for progressives to to take over, and I believe that with uh, all my heart, and, and I think there's good evidence for that. But in the meanwhile, I mean, right now the Trump administration is considering subsidies for oil companies because poor oil companies aren't doing well enough in this. And it doesn't look like we have any prayer of being able to pass this legislation in this, uh, you know, not only with the Republican Party as it is, but with the Democratic Party as it is. Well, you know, in 2016, I served on the platform committee with Bill McKibben. We talked a little bit about this in the episode today. Um, And we were able to gather and gain enormous concessions from that Clinton uh, campaign, right? We got passed in the platform, um, you know, basically a ban on frack gas power plants and fossil fossil fuel infrastructure. We got a um, hundred day set summit on climate action to be conducted within a hundred days of the Clinton administration. Now, none of those things came to pass because Hillary Clinton lost. First thing we have to do is we do have to elect somebody other than Donald Trump, right? So we have to vote for the candidate that we want to protest the most, because what's going to happen is We'll go out there, and if it's Joe Biden who is the nominee, the next day after Joe Biden takes office, we as the movement take the power that we've earned, right? Because we have spent all of this time over the last 10 years gaining and amassing a huge amount of power. And I, for one, will not give that power away. I'm talking about the climate movement, right? Trillions of dollars divested. Fridays for Future, these kids all over the place going bonkers. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, mass direct action. We have... um, renewable energy plans, 100% renewable energy plans, bans on fracking, um, huge amounts of progress in the environmental movement that we're not going to give up, right? So the problem with Trump is you can't push him and you can't forward that dialogue in any way because it's never a dialogue. It's just monologue. And I think that the difference there is obviously that we want to have an administration that we believe that we can push, that will be susceptible to our pressure, and that the power that we have, we don't just lose it. Um, So, you know, look, I think we can pass parts of it, and I think we have champions like Bernie Sanders, like AOC, like Rashida Tlaib and others, uh, Ilhan Omar. Um, And I think that we have to do everything we possibly can to get more of those voices into the House and into the Senate. Um, But listen, this is always about movement, right? We are the movement. We don't lose. We just, this election is about strategy, but we're the movement. We've had enormous gains. And so I I, I have faith that if we continue to do what we've been doing, we'll have some degree of success. But we talk about this on the program every single night. Every single night, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, no, no. And and that is hopeful. That's a great answer. Uh, so a couple of uh, quick questions here then. Um, 
speaking of one of those champions, we saw him in the picture that uh, we put up about the Green New Deal just a second ago. Uh, that's Ed Markey. He is the sponsor of Green New Deal in the Senate. Uh, and now uh, the corporate Democrats have decided uh, that they're going to primary him with Joseph Kennedy. Uh, so um, what what can folks do to make sure Ed Markey wins? And, and am I missing tons of these races. Is he really important in the Senate? We practically have a third party in America right now, and that is the candidates that have been endorsed by our revolution. Um, you know, people like Doyle Canning in Oregon, people um, like uh, Andrew Romanoff running against Hickenlooper in a primary in Colorado, people um, like, like you said, Ed Markey, who is the incumbent, but is in, facing an insurgent challenge from the establishment. So we have that we, we absolutely have to go all the way out, right? Because these are now national races, okay? They're not just local. They're not just about, you know, Massachusetts or Colorado or Oregon. These are places that we have to start to focus. And one of the great guides to that has been the, the Our Revolution organization, which has endorsed progressive candidates with that progressive seal of approval. And I think that that's one of the things that we, we can look to as how we move forward. But I think, look, the, the the revolution, the political revolution is not out of this election, right? We may not have Bernie at the top of the ticket, but we have so many other people who are being, uh, who are carrying those values forward, right? Yeah. So I mentioned uh, the Michael Moore movie, so I wanted to just touch on it for a minute. <laughs> it, Planet of the Humans came out, it was deeply controversial, went after a lot of the uh, leaders of the movement. Um, so, and I know you've talked about it before and yeah. staying with Josh Fox, and you'll probably talk about it again. But real quick, what do you think was the core of the, the problem there? What did they do wrong? <laughs> well, the premise of the film is wrong. The premise of the film is renewable energy doesn't work or is dependent on fossil fuels. This is patently absurd. Um, obviously, if you take into account the life cycle of a wind plant or a solar plant, there's a tiny fraction of the carbon emissions that are coming from those types of forms of energy. In fact, renewable energy just beat coal in terms of power generation in the United States in the last month. So renewable energy works. It's here to stay. It is a cornerstone of the Green New Deal. Michael Moore and his friend Jeff Gibbs have been their heads buried in the sand, apparently, for at least 12 or 15 years. And they've come out with a movie with dated information, with all sorts of deceitful things, fossil fuel industry talking points. It is mind numbing. It is shocking. It is confusing. And it has been roundly attacked and rebutted and debunked and all the things. There's over, I think, a hundred different scientific rebuttals to this movie saying this is nonsense. Um, so I wrote one in The Nation and we talk about it a bit on the program, but Michael Moore has should be embarrassed. He should. We've asked for a retraction, not censorship, not censoring the movie. We've asked that the filmmakers themselves understand that they really messed up and they pulled the movie back. They're not doing that, they're digging in their heels. It's kind of a disaster, but for them more than us, we know the truth. The truth is the climate movement is strong. The truth is the anti-fracking movement is strong. And the truth is that we have that power, uh, renewable energy power and political power. All right. And uh, finally, uh, all of America wants to know, is that a banjo in the background? Oh, absolutely. And there is a musical guest every night on the program or almost every night. Um, I play banjo once a week on Banjo Thursdays. Um, and, you know, look, this is our set. We, we are staying home. We are, this is a fireside chat kind of program, you know. True. And I have the banjo. We've got the fire going. We've got a, a lava lamp. And I have to just tell you, I hope this isn't a deal breaker. I'm not really that young and I'm not Turkish. Um, <laughs> I, but I understand that the Gen X Jew network does not have the same ring to it at all. So <laughs> I hope I can sort of squeak through 
and we'll just let it let it be cool in that way. Okay. Banjo Thursday is the thing I didn't know I needed in 2020. Um, <laughs> there, <laughs> there are many cures to our right. ills, and the truth of the matter is, like Steve Martin said, you just can't sing a sad song on the banjo. Although we have Don Vappi in our very first uh, episode doing St. James Infirmary so incredibly poignantly, the jazz banjo lesson from New Orleans. Um, but, you know, we're going to do everything we possibly can to stay sane, stay home, stay revolutionary, stay involved, and stay uh, uh, stay organized. All right, everybody, uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, every day now, uh, on tyt.com slash live, also on youtube.com slash tyt. They're both the same stream. Uh, staying home with Josh Fox. It's now the beginning of our programming uh, every day. So, Josh, great to have you on. Uh, always appreciate it, brother. So excited. Thanks for having the show, and thanks for having me on tonight. Absolutely. All right, we're back on the conversation on the TRT Network. Uh, a lot of folks are asking, uh, should I refinance these days in the middle of coronavirus because of interest rates? Uh, and specifically, should I refinance my uh, student loans? We've got a guest on for you guys who is saying, no, don't do it. Uh, even though you might use this company to do it. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Uh, David Klein is the CEO and co-founder of Common Bond. Uh, they're one of the first online student loan lenders. Uh, David, welcome to TYT. Thanks, Cenk. Good to be here. Uh, all right. Good to have you. Uh, I want to ask what Common Bond is in a second. Uh, but first, uh, why not? Why not refinance your student loan now? Sure. So... Um, it's a little more nuanced than that. We're, we're advising people who hold a federal student loan uh, that itself is held by the federal government. Uh, it makes sense to take advantage of the federal relief that's out there, which basically takes the payment to zero, takes interest rate to zero uh, through September 30th. Uh, and what we're telling folks is, hey, take advantage of that uh, and you know, be at the ready to, to start paying again uh, come October 1st. And to the extent you want to transition from federal relief to refi relief on October 1st, uh, then we have a platform that can really help you. And in fact, uh, we've historically helped people save a lot of money uh, on a monthly basis and over time by getting them into a lower interest rate loan, lower relative to what they're into the federal government. So if, if you're holding a federal loan that's held by the federal government, we're saying you might want to sit tight for a little bit, take advantage of relief. If, however, you have a federal loan that's not held by the federal government, uh, and that's about 20% of, uh, of loans, federal loans out there, generally loans that were originated before July 1st, 2010. Uh, or if you have a private loan from a private bank or a private lender, um, it still very well could make a lot of sense to refinance your debt, especially with interest rates that are hit at historic lows. Right. Uh, so... What is the federal government saying now? Is it that they, you don't have to pay any interest on those student debts until October, you said? Uh, until October 1st, that's right. Okay, got you. So obviously you don't want to refinance from 0%. Uh, that's a pretty good rate to get. Exactly. Yeah. And so do you have to make payments, though? It, it could be that your interest is 0% and you still have to make principal, or is that you don't have to make payments until October 1st? It's both. So interest goes down to 0%, and you don't need to make payments. Uh, the, the language says through September 30th. Uh, now, what's interesting is that if people are able or so wish to continue paying their monthly payment every month, they can do so. 
Um, and what's interesting about this time through September 30th is that every dollar that goes towards your student loan payment will go 100% towards principal. Um, and so if you're able, uh, this could be an opportunity to pay down your student debt faster since 100% of everything that goes to pay down your student loan during this period through September 30th will go 100% towards principal. And for those who choose not to pay it now, obviously because of economic hardship, do they add those months to the end of your, uh, basically your loan? Yes. So folks will uh, and still owe the government um, the entirety of the principal balance that they received. Uh, But there is this moratorium on payment to help those uh, who could benefit from some cash relief. And so um, how how about the private loans? Uh, Is there any break on the private loans or nope, you got to make the payments? Yes, interest rates, if you refinance are lower, but uh, is there any relief there in any of the laws or no? There's something called forbearance, uh, and forbearance essentially is a fancy word for payment pause. Uh, it's an opportunity for someone who, somebody who demonstrates economic hardship, uh, whether because of COVID or any other reason, uh, that enables them to pause their payments for X number of months at, at a time. And is that just for student loans or can people do forbearance on other things? Generally, there's forbearance for other lending products as well. Certainly the case for student loans. Uh, and it's something that, that we've done for, for our borrowers since the very beginning. Uh, in fact, our standard forbearance program, uh, from what we understand, is the, the, the longest amount of time, the most protection that, uh, that exists in the, the industry. So uh, I know it's not student debt, uh, but... How about mortgages? Um, mm-hmm. is, are banks offering any forbearance or any um, you know accommodation for mortgages? There, there is mortgage. There is the notion of mortgage forbearance. Um, yes, that exists. Okay. Do you know, do you have a rough sense of how many of the banks are letting folks do that? Generally speaking, that should be a relatively common uh, opportunity for people with mortgages to get. Uh, Generally, the rules are very specific to each lender, to each servicer. And so what we say is, you know, certainly in our industry, uh, call your lender, call your servicer is the more appropriate and accurate way to say it. Call your servicer, ask them what your options are around forbearance. Um, You should qualify uh, for that forbearance. Uh, But of course, every servicer has their own set of uh, criteria. You know, a lot of folks uh, don't know that that's possible. My wife didn't even know that was possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to get that word out. It doesn't mean that it's guaranteed or that it's definitely going to apply to you, but it's definitely worth asking. Um, For sure. Yeah. So what, what does Common Bond do exactly? Sure. So at Common Bond, we like to say, if you have a student loan, we can help. And we do that in four distinct ways. Uh, We have a platform we call Money Mentor Platform. It is human-powered, AI-assisted financial guidance, uh, mostly for 17 and 18-year-olds, folks who are thinking about going to college, uh, how to pay for college. We help people uh, collect and secure free money like scholarships and grants. If they need financing, we have a low-cost financing option. Uh, So that's the first way we help people. The second way we help people is with in-school financing. So there are a lot of students who, in order to go to school, 
uh, need financing, need loans in order to do that. We provide low-cost loans for, for students uh, to go to school. The third way we do that is through refinance, something you mentioned before. So this is for a student who has graduated, either an undergrad or a graduate program. They graduated with student debt, and they're looking to refinance that debt, consolidate it in one loan product at a lower interest rate, save money over time. That's what we do, and that's actually our largest business. Uh, and then our fourth business is for that student who graduated with student debt, who's now gainfully employed. Uh, we have an enterprise business whereby we provide student loan benefits to employers that they in turn provide employees as a perk. And so one of, an example of that is something we call student loan contribution. Uh, that's where we've built technology that enables an employer to contribute, say, $100 a month to their employees' student debt. People are calling it kind of the 401k of student loans. Well, that's interesting. So how do you guys uh, uh, charge lower interest rates than, than other folks? I'm not trying to do an ad. I, you know, I don't know much about the company. I'm just like genuinely curious uh, what allows you to charge a lower interest rate than the rest of the market. Sure. So the rest of the market is either the federal government or private banks. Uh, the, the federal government basically charges one rate to everybody. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that, but it's essentially one rate to everybody. There's no underwriting. So uh, the government doesn't take into consideration uh, ability to pay or willingness to repay uh, a loan. They basically say, if you can prove you're enrolled at an institution, we, the federal government, will give you up to the total cost of attendance at that, uh, at that institution. Uh, what we do is we underwrite. So we take into consideration uh, a number of factors. Uh, we're underwriting credit. We're looking at somebody's ability to repay and somebody's uh, willingness to repay over time. Uh, and so because we do that, we're able to charge a lower rate than the one rate, the one, the one size fits all rate that the federal government charges. That's with respect to the federal government. With respect to private banks, frankly, uh, we're, we're branchless. We're 100% digital. Uh, so we don't have that cost in our cost basis. Um, and so we're generally okay taking, um, frankly, less profit per loan than a big giant bank is. Uh, and so we're able to provide a rate that is a bit lower than the average rate charged by a lot of these big institutional private lenders. So the differentiation is credit relative to the federal government uh, and its uh, cost structure relative to the big legacy banks. Yeah. So we do actually have sponsors uh, that are also online banks and and uh, we've also had guests from folks and stuff so um and and they have very similar answers which leads me to uh, just a random question for you but are, are there going to be retail banks in the future or are they eventually going to go away because it's really easy to do it online and why would you have all that expense of those retail banks yeah, it's it's look. It's a question that's been asked for for a while, especially with the advent of fintech. Um, you know, these digital first, digital only fintech platforms displacing the notion of a of a big legacy bank. That being said, if you talk to a lot of the executives at many of the banks, they, um, I think you'll find one. I was going to say two camps, but there's really one primary camp. There's just gradations. Uh, the one primary camp is branches matter, but where there's gradation is how many branches you actually need, how what the concentration of branches actually is. And there you, you run the gamut. So there you have certain banks and executives at those banks 
who believe that the bank branch is critically important. Uh, not only is it a form of distribution, it's a form of brand, uh, it's a form of customer engagement, it's a form of meeting the customer where they are. And then you have other banks and bank executives who believe, yeah, branches are really important, but we could probably reduce our branch footprint by a significant amount. So branches are probably here to stay for, for a while, for, for a long time. I think where you'll see some differentiation among branch, uh, among banks is some that'll start removing a significant portion of the branches uh, mm -hmm. and others who, you know, maintain, if not double down on, on branch strategy. All right. David Klein from Common Bond. And as he just told you guys, uh, make sure you're looking into your options. This is a unique moment in time and you might have more options than you realize. So thank you for joining us on the Young Turks. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot.